0: Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to The Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen.
1: Not only does he know him by name, but he wants to spend time with him. And I'd suggest that if you're unaware of God's desire for a closer relationship with you, he already knows you, so you're not gonna shock him or disappoint him, or no, he he knows you perfectly better than the person you give the most to, that you're the most open with,
0: today's broadcast, we begin a new two-part study from Pastor Sam entitled, The Day of Salvation. We're now in Luke chapter 19, and today we will be looking at the first 23 verses. We will be considering Jesus' visit to the house of Zacchaeus the tax collector, as well as the parable of the minus. Let's listen in.
1: Luke chapter 19, title of our study this morning, The Day of Salvation. It's interesting to ponder If you knew you only had one more week to live, how would you spend that final week? And it's even more interesting to know that Jesus knew he was headed up to Jerusalem, that he would be handed over by the chief priest, that he'd be scourged and mocked and spat upon and and crucified, that he'd be buried and he'd rise again the third day. He's been telling his disciples this again and again. The details have gotten clearer and clearer And he knows this is his last week. Well, what do we see him doing? Last study concluded with Jesus healing a man who was blind. He was on the outskirts of the city of Jericho or the town of Jericho. He's only 17 miles from Jerusalem at this point. It's the time of the Passover, so there are literally tens of thousands and in some cases hundreds of thousands of people flooding into Jerusalem. They come from all different areas, but the Jericho Road, a very narrow and a long and windy road. And and so as he's pressing into Jericho, there's an encounter with a man who's blind. Does he know that this is his last opportunity to connect with Jesus? to be healed by Jesus, there's no way he could know, but nevertheless, he cries out and finds that healing. Now we find Jesus entering and passing through Jericho. And as he does, there's another divine encounter. It's an interesting one because, well, when Jesus met with Nicodemus recorded for us in John chapter three, we have the things that Nick said, the things that Jesus said. We have that phenomenal teaching on the importance of being born again and Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness and the necessity of Jesus being lifted up. But then in in John 4, we have Jesus meeting with the woman at the well and we have this wonderful teaching on on the the refreshing and renewing water that, that he brings. As we get into this particular encounter, we don't really get what Jesus has to say to this guy. We only get to see the response to it. But you have to know there were some serious things going on at that little Uh, lunch or dinner party. Well, Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. It's interesting to note, you should be aware of the fact that, well, in those days, first century and prior to that, parents would name their kids prophetically. In other words, You would name your child for what you hoped or thought God would do in the life of that child. Zacchaeus happens to mean pure and innocent. And what that tells me is his parents' desire is that they would raise a child who would be pure and innocent. That he would become a man who would be pure and innocent. But it turns out Zacchaeus is anything but pure and innocent. He's a tax collector. Now, that's not automatically bad. And maybe you work for the IRS if you do. You know, I don't know anyone who works for the IRS, who ever owns up to it. But I know they employ a lot of people. But we've talked about it. Not the most popular group. And the closer we get to April, less popular, you know, each week. But this guy isn't just a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. What does that mean? He is overseeing a bunch of operators under him who were responsible to extract taxes and that's what they were doing and in many case, exhort money from the people they were extracting the taxes from. This all came about because the Romans found it easier to have the Jews get money from their own people than the Romans go in and try to take it from them. It makes sense to us and and it worked for them. But you need to know that these tax collectors, unlike ours, who are just civil employees and we really shouldn't have anything against them, These tax collectors were considered traitors because they worked for the Roman government. Once more, they padded their own pockets in many cases, I'm sure not all, but many cases, by extorting money they didn't have coming. Well, it says this guy was a chief tax collector and he was rich. His parents' plans for him and prayers for him hadn't really panned out, but there's good news. Jesus has the same desire. He wants Zacchaeus to live up to his name, to be pure, to be innocent. And by the way, if you have a biblical name, your parents gave you that and you haven't really lived up to it, there's still hope. Jesus is at work. He's here today. And as he deals with Zacchaeus, he could be dealing with some of us. Well, Zacchaeus, we find, sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, because he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when he came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house." It's interesting to see how many times Jesus says he must do something and it is always associated with connecting with and, and reaching out to some individual who was in need of his healing or instruction or forgiveness or well, whatever the case might be. He says, I must stay at your house. Now, Zacchaeus is just trying to get a look at Jesus. Jesus looks at him. He knows him. Not only does he know him by name, but he wants to spend time with him. And I'd suggest that if you're unaware of God's desire for a closer relationship with you, he already knows you, so you're not going to shock him or disappoint him. Or no, he, he knows you perfectly, better than the person you give the most to, that you're the most open with. God knows everything about each and every one of us. Nevertheless, he still wants to spend time with us. He wants intimacy with us. So he says, hey, I'm coming to your place, invites himself and the disciples over and he made haste. He came down, he received him joyfully. But when they saw it, verse seven, all complained saying, he's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Now, ordinarily up to this point, when People complained about Jesus associating with tax collectors and sinners. It was the religious establishment. But it doesn't say here the Pharisees or the scribes or those leaders. No, it says they. And I'm thinking the they are the ones who knew Zacchaeus best. They're like, I can't believe it. He comes to town and he goes and eats with him. He comes to town and he's hanging out with that tax collector, that con man, that, that ripoff. And that's how, of course, they saw him. I've shared with you in the past, you process this, no doubt. If Jesus wasn't willing to eat with sinners, he would have had to eat alone. All he had was sinners to choose from. And these guys' problem, just like the religious leaders before them, and many today, is that they consider themselves either less of a sinner or not a sinner. And the very fact that they couldn't believe he would be a guest In a sinner's home. Well, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, verse 8 Lord, or look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Again, I wish we had Jesus teaching, I wish we had the interaction, but what we get to see is the result. And the result here is pretty interesting. It gives us some insight so we know that we're not well on shaky ground saying this guy was probably a thief. In fact, when he says I restore fourfold, that was exactly what the law said a thief who was busted had to do. Not like this whole idea, I got to be honest. It, imagine for a minute, your next-door neighbor knows you're out of town, they break into your house, they steal some of your stuff, but they get caught. Instead of incarcerating them and charging you for their jail time, these guys got to work and pay you back. Not just what they stole, not double, but four times what they stole. Not only would that be a deterrent. And I know some of you are thinking, well, that could never work in our society. Hardly anything God says seems to work in our society. But I would suggest that it could have and would have and well still could work if we were working on a local level. But the bottom line here is this was God's plan so that criminals were actually brought to repentance, that they had to make restoration. The idea of reforming someone requires they change. And you see that change in Zacchaeus here. And unlike the rich young ruler who Jesus said, you've got to sell it. Give it all away and and then you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Unlike that rich young ruler, we don't know, did Jesus ask him to give half or did he just say, hey, I'm giving half of everything I have to the poor. It's a very good start for someone who's been greedy and taken advantage of another is to say, I'm going to be generous and I'm going to be generous beyond what anyone would expect or require if I've taken anything, it's a first class construction in the Greek. That probably doesn't mean anything to you. So let me explain why it's important. The word if actually means sense, if it's a first class construction. In other words, he's not saying, well, it's possible I've probably cheated a person or two. He is acknowledging that he is not just a thief, but a liar. If I've taken anyone, or since I've taken stuff, would be just or more accurate from people, by false accusation, there's the liar part, I restore fourfold. So he's saying, I'm going to keep the law. I'm going to obey its commands. I'm going to make restoration. And I'm also going to give half of everything I have to the poor. And Jesus response today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. I doubt that you'll confuse this, but just to be sure, you need to know he's not saying, "Hey, because this guy gave stuff away, now he's saved." Because he was willing to give to the poor, now he's saved. No, these are the fruits The root would be salvation. The fruit would be generosity and a transformation. He's no longer going to be a thief. He's no longer going to lie. He's no longer going to be greedy. Now he's going to be what his parents prayed he'd be, what God intended him to be, pure, undefiled, innocent, the man God intends him to be. So Jesus says, hey, today salvation has come to this house. The idea of him being a son of Abraham, it can mean two things. And in this context, probably means both. A descendant physically would just mean that that he was, you know, just that. That he was a descendant of Father Abraham. Multitudes of people then and now could trace themselves to Abraham. but, But here's the real issue. He is a spiritual child of Abraham, a spiritual descendant of Abraham in that he is now operating by faith in obedience to the Lord. And, and so he's saying, hey, salvation has come because salvation is God's gift received by faith. It's God's gift. We get It's the grace of God received by faith, not of works lest any boast. Well, the Son of Man, and here's the age-abiding principle. This is why he was eating with Zacchaeus, why he shared with them, why there's a transformation. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We saw this beautifully illustrated back in Luke 15. If you weren't with us, CDs are available. But we saw the, the story or the parable of the lost sheep, of the lost coin, and of the lost son's. The Son of Man, our Lord, our Savior Jesus, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, at this point, Jesus' mission there in Jericho is complete. And by the way, again, there's no way Zacchaeus could possibly know Jesus won't be back. Not through this town, not for another opportunity like this. Nevertheless, The blind man seeks Jesus out and finds sight. This tax collector, this thief, this liar, finds Jesus, pursues him, only to see Jesus knows him, wants to be with him, and has forgiveness for him. Now they begin to join or rejoin the group, the trek that's headed down the last 17 miles to the city of Jerusalem. What awaits them there? Well, it's going to be the Passover. And again, tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people would pour into Jerusalem to celebrate this particular feast. On the way, because it's a 17-mile walk, he decides he'll take opportunity and and share with his disciples, uh, once again, on the importance of stewardship, There's more to it, but that's sort of the main issue that he's dealing with. He's done it two, three, four times in the past few studies. Why? Because this is his last week with his disciples. He's entrusted them with some very essential and important information. I mean, they will be the ones to go out with the gospel and the teaching to record these things for us. And obviously they they did a good job because here we are studying them, but... But bottom line, he's going to be talking about the importance of stewardship. He's going to be dealing with the certainty of his rejection and he's going to be dealing with the certainty of his return and coming judgment. Well, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable, verse 11, because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately now, those who believe Jesus was the Messiah, and this would include all those who were uh, his intimate disciples, except perhaps Judas, who we don't know what's going on with that guy. But uh, in any case, these guys assumed Jesus was about to establish the kingdom. This becomes very clear right After this parable, when we get into the Palm Sunday celebration and people start crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. It means save now, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so they think that the kingdom's about to be established. Now we know better. Why? Because here we are 2,000 plus years later and the kingdom's yet to be established. But they had good reason to expect him to establish the kingdom. They just didn't know there'd be a gap between the cross and the crown, between his first coming and his second. Well, he begins to speak to them on this issue. And he says, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Now, the older folks in the crowd, they would actually track with this story. They'd say, wait a minute. I know this story. This is so familiar. When Jesus was a young boy. Being raised in Nazareth, there was a guy named Archelius and he had gone to Rome seeking a position back there in the land of Israel. He wanted some area that he could rule and reign over. And there was a delegation that followed him and said, we will not have this man rule over us. Well, Those guys are aware the younger guys wouldn't have known. But Jesus isn't really looking back. It just turns out he could take something they were familiar with. And this is his main teaching method. And then he could take them to something way more important, something they wouldn't have seen otherwise. So as this occurred, of course, this is exactly what's going to happen to Jesus. He leaves stewards Well, he chooses 10, it says here. The picture's pointing to him. He gives each of them one mina. And then when he returns, well, each of them are going to give an account. He'll give us only three illustrations of those people, but we'll see that in a minute. As far as the citizens hating him and saying, we will not have this man rule over us. John tells us he came into his own, but his own received him not. One of the saddest verses in scripture, but it says as many as received him to these, he gave power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe in his name. We will not have this man rule over us. Well, that certainly happened to Jesus. It It leads him to the cross. There are still many saying, hey, we will not serve him. We won't bow down. But in any case, he grabs the ten, he entrusts them with the mina, he says, occupy or do business till I come. And so it was, verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom. He then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might now know how each man had gained by trading. Now, remember, he's telling a story as if it had already happened. But the real issues are forward. Jesus is going to return and every believer is going to give account for the stewardship of the talents, the gifts, the the time the energies, everything he has entrusted to us, his word, our kids, we will give account. So first guy comes to him and uh, verse 16 says, Master, your mina has earned 10 minas. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Hoping to hear those words, by the way, and you should be as well. Because you were faithful and very little, have authority over 10 cities. Now don't miss this. He gives them a mina. It's really not that much to entrust someone with. Ten guys have a mina. And so he's pretty much leveled the playing field as far as what anybody could do. This guy doesn't just double it or quadruple it. He he brings the Lord ten minas. And he says, that's a man who could rule over ten cities. And he gives him ten cities to do just that with. Now, if you're wondering, well, how would this have anything to do with us? Well, we know the scripture says we're going to rule and reign with Jesus on this earth for a thousand years. If you're unaware of it, you should know that's what's coming. Don't think we're going to be sitting up on clouds playing harps. And if we were, I would hope they were, you know, blues harps, not those harps. But, But either way, that's not what the future holds for us. No, we're going to be working and serving and and so we don't know what exactly that ministry will entail. But if I understand this parable and Jesus' intention in sharing it, he's saying our faithfulness now and whatever he entrusts to us, that will determine what happens when he returns and establishes his kingdom, our place in the kingdom, our opportunities in that kingdom. Well, the second comes, verse 18, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. And he said to him, you also be over five cities. Now, again, I love this. Each of them are rewarded for and in proportion to their faithfulness, their success, their stewardship. He doesn't say, what, only five? He doesn't compare them with the other guy. He just, hey, good job. And here's what you get in return. Then the third guy comes in verse 20 and says, master, here's your mina, which I have kept. And put away in a handkerchief, for I feared you, for you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your mouth, your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it it with interest The age-abiding principle here, and it's the principle we want to always get, is that God expects some return on his investment. He knows what we're capable of. He knows what he's entrusted to us. And he's just waiting to see well, and giving us opportunity to show that we'll be faithful with the things he's given us
0: in the parable of the minus one of the benefits the ten servants of the nobleman had was that they knew to whom the money they were given belonged to even if some did not use that information in properly investing that money many times however in our lives we can fail to recognize to whom our assets really belong to psalm 89 tells us speaking of god that the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all its fullness. You have founded them. So when we consider the idea of using it or losing it, as Pastor Sam said, understanding that it all was given to us by God, that's a big thing. No matter how hard you worked for it, no matter how creative you were and how you used your ingenuity to gather it, your riches, no matter how little or large they be, belong to God. I believe this to be the correct attitude when it comes to the assets God has given us, and when we can think that way, it certainly will help guide us in how we use them. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website ccchico.com or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam.